Welcome to It's All Political, the San Francisco Chronicle's political podcast. I'm Joe Garofoli, the Chronicle's senior political writer, and today our guest is Congressman Adam Schiff. It's his fourth appearance on the podcast, and as you know, he's always in the middle of something big in Washington. For starters, he's got a new book out. It's called Midnight in Washington. And we've seen a lot of books come out about the Trump era from people inside the White House. This one is told from the perspective of a sitting House Democrat who was one of Trump's leading adversaries. We talk about all the, the good insider stuff that hasn't been heard much before, including about Robert Mueller, as well as about Nancy Pelosi and Kevin McCarthy and Devin Nunes. Plus, we talk about the commission investigating the January 6th insurrection. Schiff is part of that crew, too. And about what happens if Democrats fail to deliver what they promised in their infrastructure legislation. Tons of great stuff here, including an F-bomb. And now, here's my conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff. Congressman Adam Schiff, from the Capitol building in Washington to my home in Oakland, California, welcome back for your record fourth appearance on It's All Political, breaking the tie, your tie, with Stacey Abrams and Barbara Lee. Uh, congratulations. I, I know this record means a lot to you. It does. It does. <laughs> uh, very exciting. And and take that, uh, Stacey Abrams and Barbara Lee. Yes. So, so uh, that's, uh, that's as close to smack talk as we'll get on this record. So we've got a lot of to talk about it, including uh, your your new book, uh, Midnight in Washington, of course. But I want to start with the commission uh, investigating uh, the January 6th riot at the Capitol in Washington. Yeah, as you know, there's there's widespread support. 78% of Americans, according to Pew, want those responsible to be prosecuted. Uh, but one of the problems that you're running into is the compelling key witnesses to testify. Uh, as we're recording this on, on, a, on a Wednesday and Thursday, the House is going to vote about whether to pursue uh, contempt charges against uh, Steve Bannon. I know the Attorney General has expressed how serious he is about uh, investigating those responsible for this insurrection. But contempt of Congress, that's that doesn't happen often. It doesn't happen since the Reagan administration, I think. What will be the impact of Bannon does not come before the committee? Well, look, I, I think this is an early test of whether our democracy is recovering uh, and whether the rule of law applies to everyone equally. If it does, Steve Bannon will be prosecuted. Uh, and if he continues to refuse, he'll go to jail. Uh, I know if you or I just ignored a congressional subpoena or a subpoena to show up in court, that they would send uh, uh, someone out with an arrest warrant. Uh, so to me, it's an early test of our, our democracy and its recovery. Um, he's an important witness. On January 5th, he was predicting that all hell was going to break loose. On January 6th, he was telling people that bemoaned the fact that they weren't present for the American Revolution, that here was another opportunity. So he clearly has relevant testimony. Uh, he was not uh, working in the White House. He hadn't worked in the White House for years. Uh, he has no colorable claim of privilege. Uh, and even if he did, you don't just get to say, I ain't showing up. You'd have to show up. You'd have to assert privilege as to specific questions or specific documents. So it's a very powerful, pretty clear-cut case for the Justice Department, which by law has a duty to present it to the grand jury. And I, I think there's good reason to be optimistic that they will, uh, because the Justice Department uh, has allowed us and other committees to interview top former Justice Department people without exerting, asserting privilege. Uh, similarly, they're not standing in the way of getting records uh, from the National Archives that belonged uh, to the Trump administration. Uh, so, uh, and, and of course, you have the president's statements himself 
that he thought those that were ignoring the law should be prosecuted. Uh, so uh, we're going to find out soon enough, but uh, I understand why people would feel like, uh, geez, for four years they just thumbed their nose uh, at Congress and at their lawful duty to testify and be truthful. What's changed? Well, everything has changed. New Justice Department, new Attorney General, devoted to the rule of law, unlike Bill Barr, who is devoted only to the personal and often criminal defense of Donald Trump. Speaking of the president, uh, former president, do you support subpoenaing Trump? And if so, you know he's going to uh, what he you know firsthand what he's uh, what he does to try and jam the process. Would it be worth the wait? Well, you know we're we're not there yet in terms of making that decision. But one thing I can tell you is that uh, all of us on the committee, Democrats and Republicans, are determined to follow the evidence where it leads, go to any witness with relevant evidence, uh, and not take no for an answer. So we may get to that point uh, of wanting the former president or vice president to come testify. We're not there yet. I think we have a lot of work to do before we cross that bridge. Um, but, uh, you know, if, if it's true that no one's above the law, um, then everyone has the same obligation. Uh, they just, uh, you know, forced Donald Trump to testify in a civil case. Uh, this is a case involving a violent attack on the Capitol. Uh, we should have at least as much leverage to compel the testimony of someone uh, in a case this serious uh, as in the one that uh, he testified in just recently. That same Pew poll I referred to found that only 45% of the respondents expected the results to be, quote, fair and reasonable. Uh, once the committee does finish in its investigation, no matter no matter what y'all find, uh, how do you sell this, the, the results to a public that's already so polarized and, and, and according to this, it's a little more than skeptical? Um, how do you how do you do that? In this environment, you know, uh, the, the answer is uh, to the best of our ability. Uh, that's all we can do. Uh, but your your question underscores, I think, the, the broader challenge facing our country and our society, and that is how people get their information. Um, Donald Trump uh, has the advantage of Fox primetime, uh, Newsmax, OAN to amplify his rampant falsehoods. Uh, it gives his supporters an alternate world they can live in. Uh, where the big lie is a big truth. Um, that's difficult to compete with. There is no equivalent apparatus uh, on the left. Uh, I'm convinced that if Richard Nixon had had Fox News, he would have never been forced to leave office. Uh, but, you know, nonetheless, we press on. There are still Americans who are interested in the actual facts and in the truth. Uh, those are the people we're trying to reach, uh, not those that have made up their mind uh, and refuse to see anything uh, else. Uh, one of my colleagues, uh, Mike Quigley of Chicago, I think put it better than anyone else. Uh, it used to be that people would say, I'll believe it when I see it. Uh, and now it's more like, um, I, will, I won't see it until I'm ready to believe it. Uh, and, and of course, that's a very different kind of a, a national media and information environment than we had uh, for decades. We haven't figured out you know, how to live with it. Um, we're going to have to figure it out and figure it out fast, though, because um, those different information worlds we live in are dividing people, setting them against one another. Uh, and, you know, there are some answers in terms of attacking that problem in social media. But the bigger problem uh, in some respects uh, is what happens every night uh, on primetime, uh, where you have essentially, uh, when Donald Trump was president, state-run media pushing out the falsehoods of that state 
you know, as represented by Donald Trump. Yeah, and it, this is something you write about a lot in the book. The 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 problem goes deeper than Trump. If Trump were to uh, disappear tomorrow, he has so many acolytes who are repeating and have been repeating the big lie that this that this doesn't uh, go away. Uh, you've you've said I've heard you say uh, recently and, and for the last several weeks that you expect Trump to run again in twenty twenty four. But regardless of what he does, what will it take to repair the damage to democracy that we've seen? over the last few years? Um, you know, you know I, I think you're right uh, that, uh, and I do talk about this in the book, how this, this challenge won't end with Donald Trump. But he is a supremely talented grifter. Uh, and I do think it will be difficult for people to try to follow in his footsteps. Uh, you have to be a supremely gifted grifter to get away with a scenario like this. The man runs for president on a platform of building a wall that he says Mexico is going to pay for. Of course, Mexico doesn't pay for a wall. A wall doesn't get built. Some of his closest friends and cronies, like Steve Bannon, start a private fundraising effort to raise money from people to build the wall, and then they steal it. And what does Donald Trump do? He pardons them for stealing from his own supporters. Um, the, the idea that, that uh, someone guilty of that kind of grift uh, could be a party leader, could be taken seriously, uh, is astonishing. Um, and, uh, and yet that's where we are. Uh, now in terms of how do we protect our democracy uh, uh, going forward, uh, look, we have to reinforce the guardrails that he's broken down. Uh, I introduced a bill um, about a month or two ago called the Protecting Our Democracy Act, which is our own package of post-Watergate reforms. Uh, much like what Congress did in the 1970s after Watergate uh, to try to protect the independence of the Justice Department, to try to give teeth to the Hatch Act so that federal employees aren't dragooned into working for the president's campaign, uh, give an enforcement mechanism to the Emoluments Clause so a president can't enrich themselves through office the way Trump did when Gulf nations would rent rooms at his hotel even when they didn't occupy them, uh, protect whistleblowers and inspector generals. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. Those reforms, voting rights reforms, uh, all of these things are essential uh, to safeguarding our democracy. And, and then people power all around the country uh, embarked on an effort like Stacey Abrams accomplished in Georgia uh, to overcome any obstacles that are put in our way, um, and particularly these efforts to disenfranchise people of color. Trump is not going to be on the ticket in 2022. And, and I ask you this as one of the Democratic Party's uh, top fundraisers at this point. It's uh, you, Pelosi, AOC, you, you uh, go around uh, the country, you're a major fundraiser. What advice would you give to your fellow Democrats who are running in 2022 when it comes to talking about Trump on the stump? Because Democrats have to be more about, we're not Trump. Trump stinks. Whatever. Trump did X. What, what do you tell them to do in that, when it comes to Trump? I really think that the economic message uh, is vitally important and it's inseparable from the democratic message, the democracy agenda. Um, and, and so what I tell people in vulnerable districts or, or who are running as candidates for the first time uh, is you need to tell your constituents or your hope for constituents what you're going to do to improve the quality of their life. Um, this is why I think the Build Back Better bill is so important, why the American Rescue Plan was so important, and even the infrastructure bill is so important. One of the reasons our democracy is threatened is because people don't believe it delivers anymore. 
I don't believe it delivers on climate change or other things that they care about a great deal. So first and foremost, you've got to, I think, impress upon people that you understand the, the challenges they're confronting, uh, the fact that they're working harder than ever, the fact that they're retiring with little set aside, the fact that their children's future um, is, is, is in doubt, uh, and that you're going to address that, and the Democratic Party is addressing it. Uh, and we're addressing it respectfully. We're respectful of those uh, that we would like to represent. Um, but also that, that, uh, that this is a very precarious moment in our history where our democracy is at risk. Uh, and we're going to fight for both. Uh, we're going to fight to make sure that the economy works for every American. Uh, and we're going to fight to make sure that they can pass on a democracy to their children. Uh, I, I think those are two very important, powerful messages. There are others, um, including the existential crisis facing the planet. But, uh, but it, it's, it's not all about Donald Trump. Uh, the reason Donald Trump, I think, struck a chord is that he talked to people um, for whom the economy wasn't working. Uh, and those people we need to talk to. Now, the, the appeal Donald Trump made on the basis of bigotry um, the people he won over on the basis of his bigotry, uh, we're not going to win them over and we shouldn't try. But the greater number who he persuaded that he would do something to help their, their lot, their condition, he's done nothing for them, he will do nothing for them, he doesn't care a whit about them, it's only about Donald Trump, but we need to impress upon people that we do care about them and we have, we have a way to improve the quality of their life. We'll have more of my conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff after this short break. Back to my conversation with Congressman Adam Schiff. Speaking of that existential uh, problem facing the planet, uh, the, the latest reports we're hearing is a lot of the, the major climate change portions of the infrastructure bill uh, are, are going, uh, are, aren't going to make it, uh, thanks in part to uh, West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. If that happens, you know, you, you're out there a lot. You, you work you represent a progressive district, uh, a lot of progressive Democrats who worked hard for Biden, who, who was not their preferred candidate, as you know, are, are going to be pissed. And, uh, what do you tell those people, uh, if, if these, if these measures, these climate measures and some of the other progressive, uh, pillars of the legislation don't make it, uh, what do you tell them is going into the midterms? How to, they might just want to slack off or not work as hard if, 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 if that stuff that they were promised is not there. Look, uh, we're going to, I think, do a lot uh, in terms of attacking the climate change problem, the crisis in climate change uh, in that Build Back Better bill. Now, it may not include everything that I want. I'm certain it will not include everything I want. But I also don't view it as the end of the story. Uh, I view it as the first act uh, in terms of our getting uh, meaningful legislation passed uh, attacking the problem of climate. Um, and and the, the reality is uh, we have an equally divided Senate uh, that we only have the majority uh, because we have the, the vote of the vice president to break a tie. Uh, and in that context, we're not going to get everything we want. Uh, we're only going to get as much as the, the, the Democrat who is least committed uh, to uh, aggressive action on climate. So people can, can respond to that in a couple ways. Um, but I think only one makes sense, and that is to expand the number of Democrats in the Senate so that we are not so reliant on every single vote. Uh, if we can pick up another one or two seats in the Senate, we can do away with the filibuster, 
that will allow us to do all kinds of things we can't at the moment. Uh, so look, it was a lot of people's hard work in Georgia to pick up those two uh, seats in that special election. Uh, that has given us a chance to do some great things for the country, important things, but not everything. Uh, we need to pick up a couple more to take the country uh, forward even more. And this is, you know, this is the way our democracy works. It doesn't work uh, in huge leaps and bounds. Often it works one step at a time. But let's not, let's not confuse ourselves. The steps that we're going to take are pretty darn big steps on climate, on Medicare, on early childhood education, on paid family and medical leave on so many things important to the American people. I want to talk a little bit about the book because there's so many great insider stories there for uh, the, the political nerds who are listening. Of course, this is the It's All Political podcast. That is our core, our core demo. Um, uh, one, of the, one, of the, uh, the, the, one of the ones I en enjoyed reading, although it was troubling, was about uh, when Robert Mueller uh, testified before the Intel Committee. Uh, about his, uh, you know, investigation to the Russian interference in the 2016 election. That seems so long ago now. Uh, uh, many Democrats thought, you know, coming up to that hearing, oh, this is going to be the be-all, end-all. This is the beginning of the end of Trump. Uh, Mueller hesitated about testifying. And when he was finally uh, testified, it turned out not to be what anybody expected, in including you. Walk us through that, uh, just the 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 just the moment, the, the day of, when you saw him testify before a, a different committee, uh, uh, spacing which, what, which one it was now, but then you, you saw that that was a different Robert Mueller than you've grown to know and see testify over the year. He, he had lost, I don't want to mis, mischaracterize this, but he seemed to have lost a step. Walk us through what you saw there and how you reacted quickly behind the scenes. Well, this was a really difficult chapter for me to write because I have great respect and admiration for Bob Mueller. I think he's an incredible public servant. But I also want to record, you know, what we were seeing and what happened and, and, and as best I could why. Uh, and I wanted to bring people into that bunker three floors below the Capitol that they'd heard so much about, uh, but only seen from the outside. Uh, and so I, I take people uh, in, in, the, in the book into that room uh, that freezing room, it's like a meat locker in there. I had asked the members of the Intelligence Committee to gather with me to watch Bob Mueller's testimony before the Judiciary Committee because the Judiciary Committee was going first. Immediately thereafter, he was coming before our committee. Uh, and I wanted to make sure that, that we took note of what he said to the other committee, that we uh, had the opportunity to make any changes or adapt depending on the testimony before the Judiciary Committee. And within the first few minutes, uh, I was really shocked at, at what I saw, um, at the, you know, the, the, the even simple questions he was asked by the Judiciary Committee that he struggled with. Uh, and I realized immediately why his staff had been pr so protective of him, why they didn't want him to testify at all. And I had, I had written a personal note to him to urge him to testify uh, against that reluctance. I, I, I told him that he had one more important public duty to perform and that was to tell the story to the American people. Uh, it was my hope that, that in so doing, he could bring that report, that lo long uh, tomb, the tome, to, to life. Um, and uh, I didn't have the expectation, frankly, that it was going to cause a stampede towards impeachment. But I did think he could give a full picture of the president's misconduct, even if he was unwilling to characterize it as a crime. Um, but, but the circumstances proved to be very different. 
Uh, and, and I wanted people to feel what that was like and see what that was like and understand the consequence. And, and, and among the most important parts of that chapter is the end of the chapter and the beginning of the next one because it was the day after Bob Mueller testified. The day after Donald Trump believed that he had finally escaped the jailer uh, and was not going to be held accountable for all of his Russia misconduct. Uh, his invitation of a hostile foreign power to involve itself in our election, his efforts to collude with that foreign adversary, his campaign chairman giving internal polling data directly to Russian intelligence while Russian intelligence was running a social media campaign to help elect Donald Trump. Um, it was immediately the next day after that testimony of Bob Mueller that Donald Trump was on the phone once again, this time to the leader of another country, Ukraine, trying to get another country to help him cheat in an election, going so far as to withhold military aid from that ally that was at war with our enemy, the Russians, uh, in order to coerce them to help him cheat in the election. Um, and you could draw a straight line between that lack of accountability in the Russian misconduct to the, the newer and even worse misconduct with Ukraine. And you can draw a straight line between the Senate acquittal, even after we had proven him guilty, uh, the acquittal, the, the refusal of senators to honor their oath and hold him accountable, you can draw a straight line between that verdict and even worse cheating to come in the 2020 election and, and a bloody insurrection. And my concern, uh, frankly, is if the country were to go down that road further and re-elect him, uh, give him another term in office, um, you will see another straight line leading God knows where. Uh, to the next he wouldn't be responsible he wouldn't have to face voters again the the the, the, the guardrails one of the guardrails at least would be up that's exactly right uh, and he would feel emboldened like never before um, the midterm itself even before we get there is vitally important if Kevin McCarthy were to go anywhere near the speaker's office effectively Donald Trump would be speaker um, because Kevin McCarthy will never stand up to him no matter how unethical his demand may be right now Trump is demanding that Republicans uh, advance the big lie and threatening that if they don't, he's going to tell Republicans not to vote in the midterm or the presidential election. Uh, and they will do whatever he says, especially McCarthy, uh, who once occupied his time separating out the color of star starbursts that Donald Trump liked to eat from the ones he didn't. Um, that's how obsequious Kevin McCarthy is towards the whims of Donald Trump. Before uh, the, the House uh, Minority Leader, Kevin McCarthy, from Bakersfield, a fellow Californian, uh, became, uh, as uh, Trump called him, my Kevin, uh, he was, uh, you had an encounter with him on a plane that you, uh, <laughs> that you, that you share in the book. Uh, tell us about that, your, your sort of uh, accidental plane ride home with McCarthy once. I thought you guys had actually served together in the, in the California legislature, but you, you just missed each other. So you didn't really know each other that well. We didn't know each other. And, and I, I tell the story in the book because one of the most frequent questions I get from people is, do the Republicans really believe what they're saying? Um, when you talk to them in private, what do they say in private? And, and here's an answer to that question. So I'm sitting next to McCarthy on a United Airlines plane back to Washington, D.C. Um, and we're having one of those, you know, nothing conversations on the plane uh, that you have while you're waiting for the movie, any movie to start. Uh, and the conversation is about who's going to win the upcoming midterms, and this is in 2010. The midterms were still, I think, about six months away. I said, not surprisingly, that Democrats were going to win the midterms. 
And he said, not surprisingly, he thought Republicans were going to win the midterms, and it was a total nothing of a conversation. So we get to Washington. We go our separate ways. Uh, and McCarthy, unbeknownst to me, goes off and he does a press briefing. Uh, and he tells the press that everybody knows Republicans are going to win the midterms. In fact, he sat next to Adam Schiff on the plane, and even Adam Schiff admitted Republicans were going to win the midterms. So I don't hear about this until the morning uh, when the papers come out. Uh, and I'm just beside myself um, at the brazen falsehoods that are coming out of his mouth. And I go straight up to him on the House floor the next morning, and I said, Kevin, uh, if we're having a private conversation, I would have thought it was a private conversation. But if it wasn't, you know you told the press the exact opposite of what I said. And he looks at me and says, yeah, I know, Adam, but you know how it goes. And I said, Kevin, no, I don't know how it goes. You mean you just make stuff up and that's how you operate? Because that's not how I operate. But that is how he operates. Uh, and in that respect, he was really made for a moment like this when his party's leader has no, no greater affinity for the truth than he does. Uh, he's willing to say anything, do anything to, to attain power. Um, and we just cannot allow someone uh, with that little ethical compass to go anywhere near the Speaker's office. Uh, there's also great anecdotes uh, about uh, uh, Devin Nunes, who you haven't, you did know and worked very well with together, you, by your own uh, telling, uh, on, the, on the Intelligence Committee uh, before Trump came to power. Uh, you actually are, uh, I didn't know this, you were a, uh, both were Oakland Raider fans or Los Angeles Raider fans, whatever you choose. Uh, and, but then he turned. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll let readers discover all the, the details, but why do you think Nunes changed uh, and went so in the tank for Trump? Because he was not that way. I used to do a radio show with him years ago where we would be, you know, the guests uh, on, on this show. And he was, you know, definitely a conservative guy, but not just uh, sort of the blind loyalty to Trump that, that happened later. What, what do you think? Why do you think he changed? You know, uh, this is part of why I wrote the book, because Donald Trump couldn't have done all of what he did, couldn't have torn down those guardrails without a lot of help, with a lot of, without a lot of enablers in the Congress. Um, and with each of them, it's a, you know, it's a story that is different from each other, but at the same time, there's a through line through all of these stories. Um, Devin Nunes, you're absolutely right, he was not an ideologue before Trump. Uh, he was kind of a John Boehner country club Republican. In fact, one of the things he, he said during the Tea Party movement, which I admired, was uh, he described the Tea Party as lemmings in suicide vests. Uh, so he wasn't, he was very pragmatic. Uh, we worked together extremely well. During the Trump campaign, though, he came to know Donald Trump when Trump was in the Central Valley. Um, and he was invited after Trump was elected to join the transition team. I think it was a very heady thing. He got to help pick people for Trump's cabinet and have conversations with the incoming president of the United States. Uh, when it became clear that Russia had intervened in the election to help elect Trump and we needed to do an investigation into that foreign interference and, and the Trump campaign's own role in that interference, I think he still wanted to maintain his seat at Donald Trump's table um, while conducting an investigation, which would have been a challenge for anyone, but it ended up blowing up on him when he, he engaged in what became known uh, as the Midnight Run, uh, where after James Comey testified before our committee, 
that not only was there an FBI investigation of the Hillary Clinton emails that everybody knew about before the election, but there was also an investigation into Trump campaign ties to Russia, which nobody knew about uh, until after the election. They had kept that confidential. Um, after that Comey hearing, which, which Republicans, I would later learn, thought was an unmitigated disaster, um, I'm sure the White House came down on Devin Nunes like a ton of bricks. Because the next day he got into an Uber in the middle of the afternoon or evening, went to an undisclosed location, purportedly saw documents reflecting some conspiracy by Barack Obama to surveil Donald Trump's campaign, uh, and then presented that information in a very public way to the White House. Well, we would learn within a matter of days that the undisclosed location he went to was the White House. And he was giving the White House stuff he'd gotten from the White House. And the whole thing was a charade. And when that blew up on him, I think it was honestly such an utter humiliation that the only life raft he could find in that storm was Donald Trump and the, the MAGA family. Uh, because even most of the Republicans in Congress wouldn't come to his defense. And I, I think that, 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 that forged the two of them together um, like, a, like, uh, like steel. Um, and, and he has been wedded to, to MAGA world ever since. Um, so, you know, it's not the same with, with Devin Nunes or Trey Gowdy um, or uh, Jordan. You know, I think in the case of Jordan, it's just a game for him. Uh, it's a sport. Politics is a sport. There's our team. There's your team. You do whatever you need to do to win. Um, and if they ever benched him, he'd probably volunteer to play for the other team. <laughs> um, and, and, and so, you know, like, you know, I often liken, I often liken the, the class in Congress to my high school class. Where, where you were, where you were voted most likely to succeed at Monte Vista High School. Uh, you did, you did a lot of research for this. <laughs> yes. Uh, you did not, you did not include that in the book. I'm, I'm hurt, but that's okay. Um, I, I do not include that in the book, um, because the last thing I wanted to do was write a book that people would read and say, oh, this is a book by Adam Schiff talking about how great Adam Schiff is. Um, and uh, I know I wouldn't want to read a book like that, um, so I tried to make sure it was not a book like that. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, in high school, you've got some great people in everybody's high school. There's some great people that you, you know, you're proud to associate with. Um, there are a lot of people who you'd rather not associate with, and then there are people who, you know, if moved to do something great and noble, will be moved to do something great and noble, and if moved in the other direction, will do something um, that, that later fills them with shame. And it's the same in, same in Congress. Oh, and I, I have time for one more question, uh, and that is about uh, your boss, uh, Nancy Pelosi. Uh, what, two questions. What is, how is, and I ask this to everyone who's close in her, in her inner circle, which I believe you are a part of, and what is the her secret to keeping the caucus together and... Do you think this is her last year? Uh, in terms of her secret, um, and you know, and here I'm going to delve deeper than uh, Ghirardelli chocolate. Um, I, I think her secret, uh, and it won't surprise you because you know her, is she is super smart. Um, she is so hardworking. She has an encyclopedic knowledge of her members, um, what they want what they need, what their future hopes and plans and dreams are. Um, she knows the caucus supremely well. 
Um, and, and she's got the talent to keep the most diverse caucus ever uh, working together. Um, and, and at the same time, often make it look easy. Uh, whoever has that job next, whenever that time comes, and, and I don't know when that time will come, but whoever has that job next is going to find out just how damned impossible it is. Um, I, uh, I, you know, whenever I'm, I'm asked to introduce her, I, uh, I point out that uh, when I got to Congress, I used to say that I regretted I didn't get to Congress earlier because I would have loved to have served with the great Tip O'Neill. Um, but once I got to see Nancy Pelosi as speaker, um, I realized that in the future people were going to regret that they didn't get the chance to serve in Congress with Nancy Pelosi because I, I really think that she is uh, probably the greatest speaker we've ever had. Uh, it's one thing to keep a caucus together uh, when it's a uh, huge majority like Tip O'Neill had. It's another when you lose four votes and you lose everything. So she's quite the miracle worker. And one last uh, California tidbit in the book that you, uh, <laughs> you quote, uh, uh, you, you, you take a lot, you've taken a lot of grief from Trump as we, we've talked about in previous podcasts. It calls you pencil necks, sleazy shift. And, and you got some advice from uh, Congressman Mike Thompson of Napa who, uh, on how to respond to, to Trump. And as you write in the book, this is a quote, Thompson suggested you should say to him, quote, Mr. President, when they go low, we go high. Go fuck yourself. Uh, you just... I, I wasn't sure that I could say that uh, uh, on your podcast, so I'm glad that you could. Yes, I was. I was going to try and lure you into an f bomb, but I figured you'd be you're 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 too you're too judicious in that. So I, I said it for you. But you wrote it. You wrote it in the book. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. <laughs> the book is called Midnight in Washington. Congressman Schiff. Thank you for being on It's All Political again. We will see you uh, down the road, hopefully next time in person. Uh, and uh, good luck with the, all the many things on your plate. Thank you so much. Great to be with you. I'd like to thank you all for listening and hope that you and your families are safe and healthy. I'd like to thank Congressman Schiff. Again, voted most likely to succeed by his classmates at Monte Vista High School in Danville for being on the podcast. The book, again, is called Midnight in Washington. And thanks again to the King, King Kaufman, for producing this episode. And of course, we always throw out some love for our theme music. That song you are listening to is called Cattle Call and is written by Randy Clark and performed by Randy Clark and Crow Song. And remember, no matter if you go high or you go low or you tell the president to go fuck himself, it's all political.